You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Pascal Levy-Gerbua, venture partner at Long Journey Ventures. And in this episode, we'll talk about Pascal's investment thesis, what major mistakes he sees while reviewing pitch decks, what are the major things that he actually looks in while reviewing those pitch decks, and a lot of other fun stuff about VC. So Pascal, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Long Journey Ventures. Sure. So um, myself, I'm, um, I've been in tech for uh, 17 years. I've been mostly a founder of two companies, one successfully acquired by uh, Nuance Communications, one of the first chatbot companies back in two, between 2003 and 2013, um, and another one with, which was an on-demand delivery company uh, that didn't make it, called Six Doors. Um, I've also been um, an executive at a unicorn called Checker, which is a background check API company uh, that runs background check for Uber, Amazon, and many others. Um, 12,000 12, or I think 15,000 companies now using Checker. Um, and uh, 400 people I joined when we were eight. Um, and uh, also I've been an angel investor um, initially with my own money. And then later on, I raised a small seed fund through the platform AngelList. And now I'm a venture partner at Long Journey Ventures. Uh, I've made 120 investments, um, already a few unicorns, including Checker, including Notion, uh, where was, I was also part of the first round, and, uh, and many others um, um, with valuations of, like, I think I have 15 companies uh, or, or 18 companies with valuations uh, north of $100 million. Um, and Long Journey Ventures is a fund, is a new fund, but uh, just one year old. Um, and um, it's a fund led by Lee Jacobs and Cyan Bannister. Um, Lee, Cyan, and I met all at AngelList in different capacities, me as an in- investor on the platform, Lee and Cyan working as partners uh, with people like me on the platform. Uh, Cyan and her husband, Scott, are some of the best angel investors in the world, Pro- definitely in Silicon Valley, in the, in the US. They've invested in 14 unicorns, uh, including Uber, SpaceX, um, Affirm, Postmates, and many, many others. Um, and Lee, um, as well as a few of his partners, are also... Uh, long-time investor is very respected in Silicon Valley with uh, names like Fitbit and others under their belts. So we've assembled this uh, dream team of operators and investors, and we're helping uh, companies in pre-seed and seed, mostly based in the U.S., some based in Europe. Nice. That's a really decent background. And... um... I would actually like to start with that one company that didn't work out. As everyone knows, I like discussing failures and how those happen. So first question is, why do you think that company that didn't really play out, why did that happen? Why didn't it work out well? 
Um, I think that I made a, an assumption, a big assumption in my... Um, so so just to give you some background. So this company was called Six Doors. And it was... Um, the goal was to to allow consumers to to find items available in the stores in their city and get it delivered same day. And so the idea was to bring the joy of browsing through the shelves of boutique stores in your city um, and get it delivered same day without moving uh, from your phone or from your computer. Um, the, the reality of the use case ended up being more of a gift delivery platform. So people were not buying for themselves, they were buying for gifts for their family um, or for their friends. And more precisely, one of our major use cases was moms buying gifts for their kids who were 25-year-olds uh, working in tech startups in San Francisco. That was our primary use case. <laughs> nice. And I mean, the truth of the matter is that um, obviously the market was not big enough, especially at the time, for a venture-scale business here. There was a, a there was a size for a business, but not a, necessarily a venture scale business. And I think that we've made multiple mistakes. One, I think we were a little bit early. Um, boutique stuff is not the main priorities. And when we launched, we will launch around the same time as DoorDash and Uber Eats, even before Uber Eats. And you know, consumers were used to same were not used to same day with the same uh, um, the same the way they are today. Um, and so the idea of ordering same day for something that was not essential was very new, um, first of all. And second of all, I think that uh, our product positioning, so the reason for people to buy stuff, ended up being gifts because of what we had as inventory. And we never managed to make people want to buy for themselves. And I think we made an assumption that people would behave the same way in front of a com computer than they would in in, when they are in a store. But the reality is that they don't. Uh, when they go to the store, they are willing to spend time and to, in a way, kind of let go. Um, and when they're in front of a computer, they want to be fast and efficient. It's a very different mindset and it le led to a different behavior. So I think that what we were trying to achieve was we didn't write, design the right product for it. Mm -hmm. Got it. So that's a very common situation, you know, where a founder makes an assumption and then builds a product based on that wrong assumption. And then a year later, they realized that the assumption was wrong. So yeah. what's your recommendation to those founders, you know, who might be doing that same mistake literally this exact moment? What's your condition to them? How should they test out if they're doing the right thing? That's a very good um, point. And, and interestingly enough, also in our case, we, we made a test. So we did a test after six months to test the logistics. And we recruited maybe 50 people uh, in San Francisco, some people that we knew, some people that we didn't know, uh, to, to test the service out. And people were super ecstatic. They loved it. Um, but the reality is that the feed, they loved it, but they never used it. But most of them never used it back. 
because the things that they could buy on the platform were not something that they would buy on a regular basis. So in a way, they loved the experience, but it was a one-off experience and it didn't really help us out. I think that the, the most important, I mean, frankly, we started with my, my co-founder, we hired a small team, um, and we started building product for maybe four or five months. We were talking to stores, we were talking to some users, but not, and we were taking talking more theoretically, um, which didn't help. I think that today I would uh, obviously crank out something very quick on um, a no-code platform like a Dalo or Bubble, and I would just make sure that after a week I can test something out with a few users, get their feedback, and go and start from there. Like the, the very fact that we spend five months building a huge amount of software infrastructure and software and code, just code, uh, without having enough consumer feedback was a major mistake. Um, and I think that oftentimes founders, including myself, we make hoops in our brain in terms of the problem that people have and we make assumptions or, or we infer something from what people say. Um, but not everybody is Steve Jobs who can design a Ford motor, a car versus a faster horse, uh, first of all. And, um, and, and it's, yeah, it's very, very hard. Absolutely. I think that um, the second thing is really to think about the job to be done framework, which I think is a good example because it, it removes a lot of legs in what I would call theoretical ideas. Um, and when I, I was talking to a founder actually a few days ago who was talking to me about an idea similar to Six Doors, and he says, well, but people love supporting local businesses, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that maybe it's true, but the, when you open a shopping app, the job to be done is not to support a local business. The job to be done is you're looking for something that you want to buy for a reason. It could be for, for yourself, for somebody else. And I think that people conflate the real intent and the stated intent. Absolutely. That's actually very accurate. We had the same exact discussion with the partners at uh, the Venture City where I work at, and he was making the same exact argument as you did. And yeah, eventually I had to pass on the deal that I personally liked. <laughs> so you guys are destroying the dreams, but uh, it's it's a very rational side. So completely support that, that uh, thinking. So let's talk a little bit more about you know, nice, interesting, unique moves. So on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that for one of your startups, you have actually turned down a term sheet uh, from Sequoia Capital. So how did that happen and why? Why did that happen? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, an interesting story. Uh, in 2003, we started this chatbot company out in France. Um, I mean, it wasn't free, even in Silicon Valley, where not a lot of startups because it was kind of nuclear winter. But in France, they were even less. And we had a nice ride. You know, the first five years, we grew to uh, from you know basically a four found four co-founders to around 30, 40 people in France. A business that was doing you know maybe three million uh, run rate. Um, and in one summer, we we had a huge acceleration. I closed uh, three. Four in four customers in the U.S. Um, eBay, PayPal, American Express, and Chegg, which at the time was a startup but became a public company. Nice. Um, 
and we had and that was amounting to maybe three or four more additional um, annual revenue for us. So it was very significant. Like we were basically doubling in size. Um, and we were meeting, we were fundraising at, at the same time, both in Europe and in the U.S. Um, and in the U.S., we had we talked we we talked to maybe five or six firms, um, and we had a few that were, I would say, contenders until the end. And in Europe, we had one that was contenders until the end. Um, and when we and for, so in the end, we had two term sheets: one from Sequoia for I think it was $60 million, $24 million post and or pre and um, one for from um, um, more Davido Ventures, which was at the time a pretty good firm, a strong firm in uh, B2B um, software, B2B SaaS, um, based in um, Palo Alto uh, for I think it was 10 or 11 million at uh, 44 posts something like that. Um, so around the same dilution, 20%, but one was basically double the money. Um, and um, I think we we had we had two major concerns with uh, with Sequoia. One is because we we were, the deal was competitive, they extended the term sheet without fin finalizing their diligence. So we were afraid that they would back off. The second thing was that we knew that uh, there were some things in our product that we needed to, to make ready for the U.S. market because we had been operating mostly in the French market and um, we were dealing with natural language processing. So it's not like a, like a pure traditional SaaS where, you know, a button, you, if you just have to change the language of a button, it's pretty easy localize, to localize your software. Here you, we have to localize the engine. And so we were afraid that Sequoia would basically um, want us to go super fast in the U.S. in terms of our rollouts um, when we knew that we were not fully ready. And so we decided to be more conservative, to take maybe the less fancy option. Um, and the last thing is that we, 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 the whole process we had with Sequoia was with this new partner called Brian Schreier. Um, I mean, who ended up being an, a legendary partner for them with like, I think two or three, maybe four unicorns under his belt. Um, but with, I mean, Brian was new, which was always concerning for, for partners. And he actually told us that the person who would be on our board would be Roloff Boda, who at the time, who was the CFO of PayPal, who also was on the board of YouTube. So again, amazing found, uh, amazing uh, investor. But we hadn't talked to Roloff at all through the process, only once maybe. So we were afraid that he wouldn't care. So in many ways, I think that we over, we were not confident enough in our abilities and we over-interpreted um, some of Sequoia's moves, which with hindsight, I can say, were just show that they cared about us and that they were confident about us. And we just didn't believe that it was possible. So I think that it was so, we were not believe because we didn't believe in our, in that, we said it can't really happen. And so we, we took the safe route, which ended up being a mistake in many aspects. 
Right, that's that's actually an epic story. Absolutely loved it. You know, <laughs> too good to be true. That's that's the story of it. Uh, <clears throat> so let's talk just a little bit more about failures and you know some upsetting things in the past, and then we'll move on to more current situation, more happy things. So, uh, what else in your previous background? You know, looking back at all your experience, all your previous fundraising uh, experience, what else would you change in that? Uh, you know maybe there you might made some moves and now you know like five or ten years later you're like okay that was a horrible move i shouldn't have never done this so what what were those moves there are so many um so sequoia was definitely number one uh, at least one of the, mm-hmm. one of the first ones i don't think it would have changed dramatically the outcome of of uh, of virtues to be honest with you but i do think that um being part of the Sequoia network would have allowed me to have opportunities um, that were f- far beyond what I w- could have done. So when I left my company in 2012, mostly for, uh, actually end of 2010, sorry, for mostly for uh, personal reasons and also because of a change in of a guard, I would say, at the helm of a company with a new CEO come from the outside uh, replacing my uh, co-founder who was a CEO. Um, again, if I had the Sequoia stamp um, on my on my resume, people would have looked at me differently. And in Silicon Valley, that matters, especially when people don't know the company. So, mm-hmm. um, top VCs attract top talent um, in Silicon Valley, and also if with top talent, virtues would have done way better. Like no question about it. So I think that the combination of the two had been detrimental to both my network and also um, the success of a company. Like we would have, we have been moderately successful with with Sequoia. Would have been very successful, um, at least much much more successful. So I think that's that's number one. Um, I mean, I've made many many mistakes. Um, Interestingly enough, in 2012, I was not in a very good financial situation. Um, and I had the opportunity to join. I mean, a friend of mine was telling me, hey, you know, I was telling him about Uber. And he told me, well, I met this guy from Uber, Ryan Graves. Um, he came to Paris recently and he's looking for somebody to be their GM. Uh, would you be interested? And at the time, I didn't want to go back to France, and so I said no. I don't. I just want to stay in the Bay Area. So I turned. I turned that down. Um, even the opportunity to interview. Um, obviously, I, I'm not. It doesn't guarantee that I would have had a job. But the reality is that, um, you know, even having being in contention, that mistake is a hundred million dollar mistake. <laughs> um, <laughs> Around the same time, I had many friends who were telling me about Bitcoin and who were telling me actually you should buy a thousand Bitcoins. It's you know it costs uh, no a dollar. Like it it was basically costing nothing, um, and um, and I didn't. I mean, I said I would I would do it, but then I would got distracted and I didn't do it. I didn't follow the instructions that my friends had gave me to do it because obviously there was no Coinbase, no nothing. Um, so I didn't do it, and I mean, obviously that's a, also a costly mistake. Um, and I mean, there are a few more, but I would say that the, the interesting thing about these two um, stories 
is not necessarily that I regret about them. I mean, sure, I, I would have been better off if, uh, if I had done it. But the most important thing in my case is that it confirmed to me, I learned from these experiences that I could have amazing opportunities if I just went, if I just did things. And so instead of waiting, of saying I can do it tomorrow or, you know, like, like just if you have opportunities presented to you, just talk to people and maybe things won't work out, but at least you'll have tried. And I think that I, that has com completely changed my bias to action. Um, and that has been, and that has changed my tra career trajectory. Um, um, and I think that that has been positive. So sure, I could be in a, I could be talking today from my yacht uh, in Greece, but um, <laughs> I, ha I wouldn't. I mean, would I have learned the same way? No, I'm not sure. So I think that that learning was was very valuable. Right. That's actually now. I <laughs> love that story. Love it, honestly. Uh, but let's stop talking about the mistakes of the past and let's move on to something more positive some people have been complaining that my podcast is a little bit too dark so let's let's try to fix that so uh next question is about the good things so you know again looking back at your previous fundraisers looking back at your previous companies what do you think was your best move so you know something that you look at 10 years later and you're like okay that was genius that was great i mean i think that there are two things the, the single thing that was my best move frankly was um starting to invest um money in 2012 um and the reason why it changed my trajectory frankly is that i did it mostly at the beginning because i wanted to build a network in local commerce ahead of my startup six doors just because i wanted i didn't have a network in that in that domain and i wanted to to build a network i think that not only did it put me in a better position but the interesting thing about investing in my case is that it creates this kind of it increases the, the serendipity of meeting smart founders and creating opportunities around you and that's, I mean, that's how I, I, I met the founders of Checker, that I, I was the first investor in Checker. I ended up joining Checker eventually. I think that the, I mean, I, I was not writing big checks at the time because I didn't have that much money. And actually the money that I invested was mostly money that I had put aside as a down payment for a house that I eventually <laughs> never bought. Um, but um that money was greatly invested because I invested in myself um, and I invested in my network. And in Silicon Valley, your network has a huge impact on your trajectory, especially when you're a founder type and you don't have a resume that doesn't read like, you know, three years at Facebook and two years at Spotify and, you know, like two years at Stripe. Like you, when you have a pristine resume, it's it's pretty easy because everybody will look at your resume and and will give you the benefit of a doubt. But if you if you've been at startups that people don't know, even if they're have been moderately successful, you don't have that pass. And and the fact that I've been an investor allowed me to to be in front of founders and of and investors that respected my 
my choice and my noise my and my my picks and um and they were able to see my value um and so that's how i was in front of when checker was looking for a first executive and daniel asked me pascal do you want to join us i said yes eventually and uh, that was probably one of the best the second best decision uh, i made because i was able to see a company that was working very well and you know go from the inside um and when you see when you go to a company that has product market fit then questions that arise are very different and it creates amazing opportunities so so that's um these are the two things investing in my network and um uh, in my case joining checker where i think the two defining uh moments in my career Great. That's actually, I love the story of how you spend your, uh, save money that you were planning to spend on the house on startups and that worked out just like a lovely story. That's the new American dream right there. Instead of buying a house and getting a stable job, you get a startup. So I <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, so actually speaking of the network, you moved here from France and I suppose that you had to network from, you know, the bottom up not knowing anyone here in the US and how exactly, how would you recommend current immigrants to do that? So uh, like a couple percent of my listeners are not US based, actually more of like 15% of them are not US based. And a lot of those not US based listeners want to move to the United States. And the first question to ask is, you know, how do I start networking? When is the right time for me to move in? Should I have like a certain number of friends there or what's, what's your recommendation to them basically? It's a very hard question. I would say a few things. Um, in my case, I was um, when when we moved. I was married. My wife was pregnant, so it was not a moment in my life where I could, you know, spend all my evenings at um, parties and events and meetups and stuff like that. Because you know, I had uh, I was going to have a family, um, and so if I was going to an event. I had to pick wisely because, you know, I had maybe a few uh, opportunities a month. I think that there are multiple ways you can do it. And I've, I've, I've seen thing, people be successful both ways. I think that, you know, you have people that go and attend many meetups or many events. And that's cool. Uh, but you'll meet a lot of random people that way. Uh, which is not always very very useful. Um, I've also seen people try to basically pretend um, that they were more successful than they really were uh, and go straight to the top of a food chain in Silicon Valley. Um, and the, if you're doing that really well, and, and what, what, what that means is that they were hanging out with you know, other semi-famous founders, or um, business angels, investors, et cetera, et cetera. And the way they reached out was mostly because they were showing them their product. It was adjacent or something that the other person could use or something that was in line with what they liked. And as a consequence, people were willing to help them out and open their network for them. I think that this is something that is worth trying. Um, it's hard. Um, but other founders are a good source because 
uh, investors are, you know, especially these days, they're, they're always having people that want to talk to them. Um, and it's really hard to, to, de to dedicate the right amount of attention. But if you're, but founders, if you're talking to another founder that is respecting your craft, um, they will introduce to other founders, maybe investors, and that's the best way to create your network in my mind. Absolutely. That's great advice. hundred percent correct. Uh, always follow that because that's right. Investors are not, I mean, chances are they will be friends with you after they invest in you and then they spend five years talking to you like every month and then they're your friend, but with boundaries, it's going to be like, you know, a couple chats and bam, they're your friends. <laughs> so definitely, definitely do that. Uh, that's more scalable model. And here we're moving on to more current situation. Uh, you mentioned that you've invested in over 120 companies, if I remember that correctly. So question is, yep. what do you invest in uh, right now in 2020? Yeah, I mean, so Long Journey Ventures is um, the fund that, um, um, again, we soft launched a year ago and we're going to launch, we're, we've launched uh, now a few weeks ago on uh, mid-November. Um, and uh, Long Journey invests both in pre-seeds and seeds um, in founders across the US, across, the, across sectors. I mean, we've invested in obviously SaaS, we've invested in marketplaces, consumer marketplaces, uh, we've invested in um, developer tools, we've de invested even in almost uh, like a media company, almost um, like a tech and media company. Um, so we've uh, we've and we've done one investment in uh, direct to consumer, even though it's not really our um, area of um, expertise. So we invest across the spectrum. We don't have a, a focus in terms of uh, markets. We we tend to believe that uh, our founders will lead us to where the future should be, not you know our thesis per se. Um, and we, I mean, our name is Long Journey, and so our job is to build a strong relationship with founders, help them as much as possible across the journey, not only at the beginning, but throughout the journey of a company so that we could be the ally and a, and a, a voice and a, and a ear that is present for the founders across the life of a company. Mm -hmm. Um so we're in, we're in it for the long haul. We know that it will take seven to ten years, uh, sometimes more, for a company to to get to a point where they, we can exit, and we're fine with that. That our our investors are fine with it, and and we've been and we've done it enough times that uh, we're confident that um, that this model works. Mm -hmm. Right. Nice. Uh... I'm like listening to you and I feel like you're just like the copy of my partner from the venture studio where I work at, <laughs> even though he's Belgium, not French, but we both speak French. So you're very, very similar there. <laughs> so um, here we're moving on to the next question of the mistakes that you see in other founders. So, you know, when a founder approaches you, uh, when he or she pitches you, what are the major mistakes that you see in that particular pitch? So in both the verbal presentation and in the visual presentation? Uh, 
I would say that um, today I feel that the decks that we receive are all above a certain bar, which was not the case maybe five, six years ago. Um, so I think that the most important thing is that it's make it very simple for people to understand what you're doing. When an investor is going to review your deck for the first time, either because you're emailing me, emailing one of us directly, or you're emailing, you're, you're going to be introduced through a friend or a connection. People, investors spend maybe two to five minutes on a deck maximum at, the fir at first glance. They just want to have an overview of what you're, what you're about and whether it's something that is interesting to them or not. If you're not interested in these two to five minutes, then the odds that you're going to have meaning are very low unless you've had a raving reviews from a founder that people respect. So just make sure that after two or five minutes, I can, make an, I can have an opinion of your company, what it does, what traction does it have, what is its go-to-market, um, what are its key differentiation in the market, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that if you do that very well and you explain very clearly why is there a problem in the market that you're going after and how you think that you have unique insights that make you the best suited to solve that problem, you have done 90% of a job, but very few people do that well. They either use buzzwords or they don't explain whether it's your go-to-market strategy very clearly, or you have no clue after 15 slides what their traction is. And so, no, we move on. Mm -hmm. I mean, other people, like every day I have 10 founders sending me emails on LinkedIn or trying to connect with me on LinkedIn. And they tell me, they pitch me their company. Don't pitch me your company. Just send me a, a link to a deck and then I can make a decision. If you're just telling me I'm X for Y, I don't care. It's it's too broad. I, I get 15, you know, random emails like that every day on top of the emails that I'm getting from other other founders that I've been introduced to on my inbox. So I feel that um, most people don't put your, themselves in the shoes of investors. And, you know, at the end of the day, at that time, your goal is to get us to pay attention to you. And so that, what that means is that you really need to make sure that you have something that is very clear, obviously compelling in one way or another, um, and where it's easy. I can click a link. I see your deck. I like it. I'm going to talk to you. I don't like it. I'm out. Very easy. Mm -hmm. Great. That's actually, that's extremely accurate. 100% agree here. One more question before we move on to the last question is uh, my personal like, question that just popped out uh, popped in um question is what do you prefer the deck or a short short like one paragraph summary of what the company does some bullet points on the milestones achieved and that's it so basically a, a short blurb versus a pitch deck i personally like pitch decks but it's also maybe because i'm more visual um like if you're telling me we're solving X for Y, I mean, it's so broad, I don't know. I need to have a little bit more of a story. So again, I'm going to spend, 
I'd ra- I'm okay to spend two to five minutes on it, but I want after two or five minutes to know whether I want to, to learn more or not. If you're giving me something that is too high level, I don't know, and then I will say no. And that's a mistake, but it's maybe my laziness, but it's also the fact that but you know most investors they don't even read the inbound that comes um, without any referrals just because they have so much deal flow without that that it's very very rare that they even read that so i do read it but if you don't read my instructions on linkedin and you don't even send me a link to your deck like you're not respecting <laughs> you're not respecting me as a as an investor, I said, please include your link to your deck. If you're not including a link, I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, reply to you. Right. And I know that yeah. most most founders do the same thing, and they do it with me. Yeah. They do it with hundreds of other investors that I know. They just they're they're doing what is easy for them, which makes sense. But your goal is to be successful. Right. Startup life is certainly not about. You know, going the easy path, hundred yeah. percent. So definitely, uh, actually, that's very true. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. A lot of investors actually put the specific instructions on how to reach out to them. So some investors actually prefer that you to send out uh, your blurb on their literally DM on their Twitter account. Some prefer, you know, as Pascal, uh, just an email with the short description and the link to their deck. So. Definitely take your time. To and, go. and I don't, yeah, it could be on LinkedIn. It could be yeah. on, um, it could be a DM on my Twitter account. My Twitter account is at 2PASC2, like the, the number PASC, P-A-S-C. Um, uh, it's an homage to Tupac Shakur, the, the hip hop artist. Um, and um, I mean, but I don't care where you're going to contact me, but always include a link to a deck or a deck and don't send me uh, an email to the eight or nine emails you've scraped from LinkedIn uh, or you don't send me a MailChimp. <laughs> right, I, I right, get right, a lot yeah. of those and I'm yeah. like, no, that's really, like, I don't care. Yeah, like that. I don't get like as much deal flow as you do, but even I don't open this kind of emails because that's just, that's just too much, honestly. Um, <laughs> so on this positive and pretty, pretty fun note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Pascal, what is the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Sure. Um, I think that um, uh, they should follow me um, at Tupask on Twitter, or they should follow uh, Long Journey on Twitter, Long Journey Ventures on Twitter, um, and um, you can engage with us there um, in, in in different ways. and um, And I think that's a, the best way. Great, that's great. And I'll make sure to leave links to both your Twitter your LinkedIn and to the Twitter of Long Journey Ventures in the description of this episode. So if people you think you are a good fit, if you think that you will connect with Pascal well, make sure to attach the link to your deck. 
because otherwise I will be ashamed for, for bringing you to Pascal. Uh, my call to action is going to be check out the description of this episode. Uh, the contact information of Pascal is going to be there. And probably, yeah, that's the only thing that's going to be there, but it's 100% worth it. So <laughs> do that. Check out the description of this episode and have a good day.